Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio projects. You can get a free audiobook of your choice at www.audible.com slash race. And it's helpful if you scream it when you type it in. The following podcast contains explicit language. Yo, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race. This is the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre, post, yet still very racial America. You can say all that or just call this show About Race, which is how you should search for it in your podcast software, by the way. This is Baratunde. I am in from St. Paul, Minnesota this week, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are my co-hosts, Raquel Cepeda. Hello, Hello. Raquel. Shalom. Hola. That's three different ways to say it. Thank you. And Tanner Colby. Hello, Tanner. Hello. I'm going to go with one. Just just hello. Keep it simple. And and I'll offer up a, a Midwestern Haya. I, I don't know if that's what they say out here. I'm going to paint a broad brush ignorantly of people who I don't deeply understand. Our listeners will enjoy it. Here's what's up on this week's show, y'all. We got President Obama's reaction to the massacre in Charleston, the Confederate flag in Tanner's closet, and the legacy of colonial oppression on the island of Hispaniola. Then we'll wrap things up with Yo Check This Out, our tips and recommendations. Uh, I will start with what's up with me. I got to see my big sister, Belinda Thurston, this week. Visited Lansing, Detroit, uh, Chicago, Milwaukee, a whole Midwestern tour going on. Uh, but my sister's got a yoga studio. I'm very excited yeah. for the work she's doing there. And I just get so re-energized uh, and being connected with uh, my one sibling. Uh, who, who I grew up with. She's, she's nine years my senior and infinitely my wiser. Um, but yeah, check out Belinda Thurston. I'm going to cheat. Just B, letter B, yoga.com. She's doing such great work uh, with yoga for people who are recovering from sexual trauma, for those wow. who are plus size. She's really delivering on the concept of yoga to the people, and her whole model is donation-based, so you pay what you can afford. Uh, I love my sister very dearly, so uh, that's what's up with me is uh, I got to re-energize myself with family love. That is so awesome. Your Good sister job. sounds awesome. She's the best. If you like me, you would love her. I'm I'm a shadow of my sister. I want to go to Michigan yeah. and do yoga. Yeah, me too. <laughs> there you like, go. Screw this New York uh, yoga. I need to go to Michigan and do yoga. <laughs> wow. And what kind of yoga does she specialize in? Uh, vinyasa yoga. Oh, vinyasa. Yeah, wow. the flow. The flow. Oh, that's a tough one. I only yeah. know that because my daughter... It was, was also recently certified in yoga and oh, she yeah? started she just wrapped up her first like you know tour uh teaching and it was you know it was it was challenging but she felt really satiated spiritually she says um teaching teaching that's great especially so older should, people she should meet my sister and why don't you tell us what's up with you raquel besides your your child becoming a, an educator well actually it's all about my child i'm, I'm right now she's taking uh her first trip alone overseas well, to Canada and my stomach has been turning. <laughs> so, so the opposite of overseas. Yeah, yeah to Canada. <laughs> Overland. On her yeah. way to Vancouver with Nike to um, 
to the finals of the World Cup and it's the first time that she's been on a plane by herself and traveling alone. And I know she's 18 and I shouldn't even be, you know, nervous. But to me, she's still a little baby. She's still a little girl. And I'm very, very nervous and sort of distracted as I'm sitting here and she's over there. I love it. We got yeah. okay, this is so so far. It, Tanner, if your update is not about a brown woman teaching yoga, you got some explaining to do. So what's up with you, Tanner? <laughs> You should see his face. I got nothing. I got nothing. No, <laughs> you should see um, his face. My update is completely self-centered. It's all about me. Uh, <laughs> and that I finished a book yesterday and turned it in. Yes. Yes. Round of applause. Yes. 120,000 yes. words. Uh, it's Whoa. Off, yeah. It's, uh, that it still has to be edited down. Um, right. But it's a great book. Uh, very relevant to the current moment of Black Lives Matter and law enforcement. Uh, and policing, and uh, there will be uh, much more news about that down the line. But the book itself, the first draft, is done. You are like a machine, dude. Like, really I don't know how you have just the... It's like, like a one-man publishing company. Yeah, what the heck? I don't know. <laughs> it's how I pay the rent. I got to do it. Wow, you gotta man. start. You got to start getting ghostwriters yourself, you know, to like subcontract out. How many books can you be have in production at once? Like, can you get like... Five books, fifty books. What, I could probably get at least two or three going at the same time if I did that. Who wants wow. to ghostwrite a book for a ghostwriter? That um, is crazy. Yeah, there you go. Well, congratulations, man, and, uh, and and thank you all for sharing all that. Let's jump right into Charleston. Uh, in our previous episode seven, we gave a brief acknowledgement to those events, but that was two weeks ago, and now a lot has settled, and some remains unsettled. We know the basic outlines, uh, a very, very uh, hurtful and hateful person uh, went into the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and killed not only the pastor, but eight other folks engaged in a Bible study. This has caused yet another moment of rhetorical reflection in our nation, calls for a national conversation by people who clearly are not yet aware of our podcast, calls for the removal of Confederate flags, calls by candidates seeking to be president uh, for some kind of action or acknowledgement, or in some cases, running away from the idea. So the story that I, I wanted to bring to the table is kind of how our president and those who want to be him uh, have used this moment to talk uh, about the topic uh, of race. And we've got a lot of folks in the mix. I'm not going to hit them all, but I wanted to pepper y'all with a little flavor of what is out there on the democratic side we've got hillary who was talking to the u.s conference of mayors she had to my surprise some really clear and, and strongly worded things to say uh, one of which is that our problem is not all kooks and klansmen uh, the idea that the racial challenge in america is relegated to deranged extreme hate group members uh, it's well beyond that she goes into bias she goes into disparate economic outcomes, the 500 times multiple for black kids to have asthma over white kids, the odds that you're going to live in a poor neighborhood, etc. So she is really stepping it up when it comes to making racial justice a centerpiece of her candidacy and not just around black people. She's also getting even more aggressive around the idea of immigration reform and, and seeking to engage uh, more consciously within the Latino community in the United States. On the other side of the aisle, uh, you've got a, a lot of folks right after Charleston who didn't want to even talk about it being race, right? They were very much thinking, oh, this is like religious persecution, Rick Santorum. They're attacking churches. 
Yeah, that's right. What kind of person, you know, can they, they would, they were like afraid of the word race. They were, they were race phobic uh, in terms of their rhetoric and their language. Uh, and, and to the extent that race will be a part of a, of a candidate's message, it will not be from Bobby Jindal, uh, one of the more oh, recent entrants not. into the race, uh, yeah. Indian American who refuses that title because he just hates the hyphenated American. There's no such thing. His parents came for, here for opportunity. They found it. Everything's working out just fine for <laughs> Team Jindal. Uh, we got Donald Trump, who I hope we don't spend more than 37 seconds on. I think we're already uh, done with that. that. We're done. So now, so we, All right. So we've effectively addressed uh, Donald Trump. And, and I want to I bring it to a close with our actual president, uh, who, who still has 16 months or so left in the job and seems, to, to my view, be really feeling himself and, and, and attacking many subjects without any sense of fear. Uh, let's listen to President Obama on the WTF podcast with Mark Marin. He's talking about the idea of racial progress uh, and the amount of patience or timing we should keep in mind as we try to tackle uh, this original sin. You know, coming from where you came from right. and, and, you know, trying to define yourself in terms of uh, the African-American community right. and, and, and in terms of uh, racial relations. Where, where, where are we with that in terms of when you came in, in your mind? Well, for, first of all, I, I always tell young people in particular, uh, do not say that nothing's changed when it comes to race in America unless you lived through being a black man in the 1950s or 60s mm -hmm. or 70s. It is incontrovertible that race relations have improved significantly during my lifetime and yours, and that opportunities have opened up and that attitudes have changed. Yeah. That, that is a fact. What is also true is that the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, discrimination in almost every institution of our lives you know, that casts a long shadow, and that's still part of our DNA that's that's passed on. Uh, it, we're not cured of it. Racism. Racism. We are not cured of. Clearly. Uh, and, and, and it's not just a matter of uh, it not being polite to say nigger in public. That's not the measure of whether racism still exists or not. It's not just a matter of overt discrimination. We have to, societies don't overnight completely erase everything that happened two to three hundred years prior. Very eloquently stated, I think. Uh, and I'll add two more points to the mix and then open it up for the rest of us. Uh, ben Carson, Republican candidate for president, more on the fringe, uh, black dude, neurosurgeon. Uh, he was chastising his fellow running mates for not acknowledging when race really is at the heart of a matter as it so clearly was in Charleston. And he described racism as a sickness that is crippling our nation. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders, uh, who is, you know, being celebrated as an alternative to Hillary Clinton, clearly very progressive and liberal voice has almost nothing to say on the subject of race. Uh, to him, everything comes down to economics so I'm I'm curious, you know, as we are heading into 2016, as we are wrapping up with uh, our time with President Obama, uh, how does race in the presidential sphere play out? Has, has Obama changed to your mind? Do you see the obvious lines of left and right playing out a bit differently 
with some of these candidate statements coming out from Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Jindal, uh, Carson, and anyone else you might have in mind. Uh, the floor is open, y'all. Well, I think on the Republican side, they're mostly clowns. Um, they either they know exactly what's going on and they're too scared to say it because they know their old uh, reactionary white uh, primary voter base just won't handle it, or they really are just that incapable of grappling with it on their own. I think the interesting thing that's happening on the Democratic side, I don't have really a problem with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is kind of like a one-note guy. He's the economic inequality guy. He's not in this to be the general interest candidate who's going to win the general election. He's in this to hold Hillary Clinton's feet to the fire on economic inequality. And he's a guy who represents a state that's 104% white. So, uh, you know, so for him to just only speak on inequality and not be that eloquent on issues of race, that's really fine. You he, think he knows that he's not going to win, right? He just wants to make sure that he gets his message out. Right. And that's like an, he's not doing that, right? It's an important role because I think, and, you know, now Jim Webb is getting in it and uh, Lincoln Chafee, I think, from Long, from Long Island, Rhode Island. Um, <laughs> one of the islands. One of the islands. You know, these people are getting in to hold Hillary's feet to the fire. And I think that's necessary on issues of of economics, given Clinton's relationship to Wall Street and other things. What's unique about Hillary in this instance is that she is the first major Democratic candidate for president in recent history who cannot afford to take the black vote for granted because she lost it bad in 2008. And yeah. what you see from her in the speech before the mayors and what she's been talking about, voter IDs and mass incarceration, these other topics, she knows that she just can't be her husband and go out there and play the saxophone, that she has to win, <laughs> win the black vote. And so if Barack Obama sort of brought all of this to the surface, just being who he is, could Hillary be the person to actually then resolve it from a policy point of view? Because she is then able to do things that her husband couldn't do uh, or that Barack Obama himself couldn't do. But you know what? To be fair to Hillary, too, she was talking about the Confederate flag and racism, you know, in 2007, before it was in vogue to talk about how, you know, messed up it was to have these symbols in the state capitol in South Carolina and just in general. Yeah, so... but she, she, they were both she and Bill were kind of like patting Barack on the head, like, isn't this cute that you're running for president? And I think black people sort of uh, took a little offense to that. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I, as as the person on this uh, show who speaks for the black people, I will say, yeah, they were personas non gratas uh, in 07 and 08. And they got she got real ugly and her husband got he acted such the fool. He overplayed his uh, access to the black community. Right. And, you know, when they started having them and their surrogates, uh, but very high level ones, paint candidate Obama as a thug because he smoked some weed like everybody in the 60s and 70s did, you know, that was, that was some really uh, dog whistle politics that they, they, they did down in the, in the South, in the rural Pennsylvania. Like her message was not very comfortable for, for a lot of black folks. So she, she has some making up to do, to, to your point, Tanda, that she, she lost because she also didn't just, she didn't attack Obama on the merits. She like played with race and how she tried to distinguish herself from him. So she might have talked about the flag, but when it comes down to like a chance to have an actual first black president and your husband was the fake one, she didn't compose herself very well with that opportunity, you know, five years ago. As long yeah. as she stops putting on the or fake southern accent. Seven years. Is she ago, doing that really? She, no, I, think, I, started, I heard I think that a little bit. She does it without thinking. Uh, it's probably just Everybody an unconscious. Does it. Yeah. I put on a I fake do that. Y'all hear me doing that? <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. 
So we can barely uh, speak um, English now. <laughs> I mean, there are definitely legitimate criticisms to make about Obama's presidency from a policy point of view uh, in dealing with people low income, jobs, and, and Wall Street, and, and so on and so forth. But the idea that he's failed to address race, when in fact he is in a position where he cannot do anything, and the the, the whole uh, Henry Gates episode uh, pointed that up from the get-go. That was one of the first times where he basically just spoke the truth. If you're a police officer who has to arrest a 65-year-old man in his own home, you're not a very good police officer. Uh, and that statement of that simple fact blew up and took away a week of his presidency where he was not able to control the narrative or get anything done. And right. his responsibilities as the first black president is completely different from Michael Eric Dyson and Al Sharpton and all these people who are on the outside. And if you're Al Sharpton, you're going to be president. If you're president, you can't be Al Sharpton. And so I just find that whole criticism of Obama that he's failed on that front to be completely absurd. I even think his critics, though, now would probably change their tune because I have never heard him ever speak so frankly about race and in such an accessible way, in such a way that's not like you white people are all the devils and we're all the victims. No, in a way that he just wants to kind of um, spark Americans to start really talking about race in a way that's very frank. And I heard that really, oh, in that eulogy, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way he just went, you know, he was just very direct with systematic racism. And I love what he said about, you know, when Johnny gets a call back, but not Jamal. I mean, he said he has a way of being able to talk to so many people and say such deep things. And now he's just like, this is my victory lap. I'm not going to be president again, you know, starting after next year. So I'm just going to start speaking my mind. And I think we're seeing him doing that more and more and more. And that, I think, is really striking a chord with a lot of people. Don't you think? I've been so aware of him and race from the candidacy forward, I'd say, especially 2007 till today. And there was, you know, when Philly, he talked about race as a candidate. And it was like a, a... a show-stopping moment. The whole country was like, what? The black dude's talking about black people. Oh, snap. And then from, from that point forward, he invoked symbolism to you know ride the crest to the White House, speaking you know on the mall and, and doing these things. But when he talked to black people, it was very condescending. Uh, it was very pull your pants up, your pants hanging too low, stop playing video games, where the father's at, where my father's at. I didn't have a father. None of y'all have fathers. Okay, but fathers the thing, don't be I, black. You know? You're absolutely and I, and, right that it was condescending, but the thing about the absent father, asking Barack Obama to not talk about absent fathers is like asking Spielberg not to make movies about children of divorce, right? That's, just, that's his thing, is the absent father. It's not, I'm not, that's, it's I'm not anywhere suggesting, I'm not anywhere suggesting that he not talk about it. Yeah. Right. I'm saying that when he has spoken to black people as the president, that's all he's talked about. That's true. And, he's talked about and, it too much. And he has, I think he got burned, but we're just in a very different moment now where like from beer summit and, and Glenn right. Beck basically telling you who you can hire to this quote that he says about the flag. I just want to read this very short. He says, look, um, Removing the flag from this state's capital would not be an act of political correctness. It would not be an insult to the valor of Confederate soldiers. It would simply be an acknowledgement that the cause for which they fought, the cause of slavery, was wrong. That is like the clearest thing he's ever said. And this is a master communicator. And he just he's done it relentlessly over the past few weeks. And the president is just going in, whether it's on drugs, on gun control, whether it's on how we talk about race, whether it's on climate initiatives and like just getting whatever he can done in these in these last moments of his presidency so long long way to say 
he is far more secure as a human being now, I think, as a leader and as a communicator and choosing to use those powers for things that truly do matter. He's, he's lost the caution. And actually, you know, I, I love that pull quote that you used because I actually wrote the same one out, but I continued with, it would be one step in an honest accounting of American history, of America's right. history. And that to me was just like, oh my goodness. If this is going to be him from now to like when he's done, I mean, I'm going to be like dressing in black for a year after he's like no longer president, mourning, mourning this man. The, 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 the other positive thing about him just rising up is that he's inspiring other people to do the same, to follow his lead and not to bring up or belabor what Donald Trump said. He's an idiot, whatever. You know, I was surprised at how the Republican candidates, the like, what, 18 or 19 of them, I don't even, I lost count, wouldn't step up to say anything except for Ted Cruz, who said that he liked him and he agreed with him and he said he speaks the truth. Ted Cruz, who was born in Canada and has a, a Latino father, the only one who had balls, who showed that he had balls, was George Pataki who tried to corral the other candidates to come out against Donald Trump because saying these incensing things about, you know, all uh, Mexican, quote unquote, illegal immigrants are rapists and murderers and whatnot um, is not going to do anything to gain the Latino vote. You do kind of have to give it to Don Lemon for asking Trump, who's doing the raping? Yes. It's the only good question that Don Lemon's ever asked on TV. <laughs> I was just about I was just about to say the same thing because he was like, uh, Don, who's doing the raping? He's like, well, I, 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 I don't know. I, I suppose. I mean, look at the rape. That's how he responded. Right. Right. I, no, I, I, I look forward to the to, to the day where Trump says something and no one knows it. Um, and it, we're closer to that. He, the apprentice deal, the Miss Universe thing, like. Hopefully things are starting to crumble in a way that he, he won't rebound from in terms of polite company or political company. So, so here's, here's another thought I want to leave our, our listeners with because we want to move on and dive, zoom in on this race topic uh, to get more specific. I think the president and the country have raised the bar. I think the president has reacted well to these grassroots notions, to the fact you know, that we have to talk about this now. I mean, Ferguson, Baltimore. Pick an American city. There's something that's happened there with a hashtag attached recently that has gotten this president and this nation to talk about things. It gives me a, a bit more hope that the promises that will start to be made as we get closer to election days uh, will be delivered on, uh, at least in part, by, by whoever occupies this White House next. Uh, more hopefully on my end, if that is someone like Hillary Clinton. Uh, we, we call this show our national conversation about conversations about race and very few things spur national conversation like a persistent and feisty presidential campaign. We would love to hear you join uh, our national conversation. Send us an email to showaboutrace at gmail.com. Include a voice memo attachment so we can hear and share your lovely voices with the rest of the nation and indeed the world. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Show About Race if you prefer a more pithy format for registering your thoughts. We're going to close this topic for now, but it'll only get larger as we get closer to November 2016. Uh, let us know what you think, and we'll keep letting you know, of course, what we think. Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by Audible.com. We're excited to have them on board. They have more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them from a bunch of different devices. You got your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, your iPod, your, your Chromebook, or any other MP3 player in your arsenal of devices. One book you could try out, a little something called How to Be Black by me, Baratunde Thurston. If you like this voice, 
You can listen to that book with this voice because I did the reading myself. So visit audible.com slash race. That gives you a free audio book and a 30-day trial. You don't have to use it on my book. You can use it on over 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products that are out there. I've been an audiobook junkie since before Audible was created. I loved when they hit the scene. I'm even happier now. They have so many choices. I'm very proud that they are a sponsor of our national conversation about conversations about race. Again, audible.com slash race. Check it out. Click it out. Download something. Let's move forward deeper, dive into the murkier waters of race in the country, especially in a particular part of the country that we call the South. I'm talking about the Confederate flag. I'm going to hand the mic to Tanner to take it away. Okay, so I am probably, I'm going to guess, the only person in this room with a Confederate flag in his home. No. You have a Confederate flag? Oh, you have, oh, a, I mean, you I have, have the messed up one, yeah. I have the messed up one. Um, Michael Holman, an artist who was actually part of uh, a band called Grey with Jean-Michel Basquiat, who wrote the Basquiat uh, film, right? and he's an artist himself, uh, did a whole series of Confederate flags, and it's really interesting, and what I'm going to do is just... Uh, post and you know a couple articles about right. it uh, because it's it's not what we're talking about today. But right. he's looking at it in a way that's very ironic. Yes. as a Black American, I have a very unironic Confederate. Yeah, flag in my you have apartment. a more on uh, yes, yes. unironic one. I have an I, unironic Confederate flag, which is actually on my high school diploma. And <laughs> so, what's interesting now, as everyone who's been following this story knows, Bree Newsom climbs uh, the flagpole in South Carolina, pulled down the Confederate flag. Nikki Haley, uh, the governor of South Carolina, has finally. Uh, put it, you know, uh, got it to go to a vote and a debate on the Senate floor uh, in South Carolina to take down their flag. And it's provoked this rash of confronting Confederate flags, Confederate icons. What does it mean? Who, who is it for? This debate has now come back to my hometown where I went to high school. I went to high school in the suburbs of Birmingham, Alabama, which is one of the original white flight high schools to try and secede from the county schools in order to avoid busing. And when they did, they adopted as their official school banner the Confederate flag, and they adopted as their official school mascot the Confederate rebel. And so then they were sued by the NAACP and had to have busing, and that's what I wrote about in my book. And so for 30, 40 years, this just went unchallenged. When I went to high school there, it was just Confederate flags a go-go at football games, and no one thought twice about it. And then I went back to write about my school, and I thought, well, this is going to you know, be more of the same. And I was actually struck by how much things had changed. A, black families and students were doing really well at the school, um, which I had not expected. It had gone from like 1% black to about 9% black, which is pretty significant. And the principal there, a guy named Cass McWaters, had formerly been a principal at an all-black school in the inner city. And he had taken it upon himself to ban the Confederate flag. Um, and he did it actually very smartly, which is that he avoided any and all discussion of it whatsoever. Um, because the only places, <laughs> no, I'm serious. The only places that is amazing. <laughs> the only place the Confederate flag appeared officially was on the diplomas and the school letterhead. So he just called up the company that made the school stationery in the middle of the summer and replaced the Confederate flag with the Alabama flag and told no one. 
Like, it was months before anyone even recognized what had happened. He couldn't ban the Confederate flag at football games uh, because that's a public event and anyone can come. But what he did was he banned polls for safety. But now, because they kept the Confederate rebel, and which he said at the time had not provoked any blowback or controversy at the same level that the flag has, there is a huge debate raging at my high school back and forth on Facebook about a group of parents want to get rid of the Confederate rebel and move forward to the 21st century, and they want to adopt a more progressive and inclusive mascot that still conveys the message of charging down the field and beating the crap out of your opponent. And of course, you have this very, very reactionary group that is, I mean, they're blowing up. They're putting ribbons on mailboxes. They're making t-shirts. They're making yard signs. Save the rebel. We love our rebel. Um, It's actually a town meeting next Tuesday. I've been asked to write a statement to submit um, for what's going to happen there. So it's really interesting uh, I think, to see how it's going to turn out. I'm just curious, I'll, what do you guys think of the movement? I think that it's kind of not crazy to give the discussion even dignity by debating it, not just taking all that symbolism down. I think that symbolism doesn't belong in popular culture. If we want to, I mean, symbols of racial intimidation don't belong in popular culture. They belong in a museum. Because I also don't believe they should be sandblasted because it's an, it's an honest accounting of American, America's history. And mm-hmm. we should learn about it. Right. I actually read that in Alabama, in the Capitol, in the state Capitol, they just took it down unceremoniously. And that, to me, spoke volumes because now they're having this debate and they're going to you know, really think about it earnestly in South Carolina when I don't think there should be mm-hmm. any discussion. Just take that shit down. I think we have for too long indulged the feelings of people lying behind history. We would never fly a British flag on government property, right? There, there were people who stood against a United States and they lost and we move forward as a United States. You don't give so much real estate to the traitors. As honorable as individual human beings, as loving fathers, as, as caring uncles as they may have been, you don't preserve the symbol of their treason in such official capacity as on the grounds of the state capitol and on letterhead and all kinds of other government documents for the one nation that actually survived. Uh, and, and I think there's, you know, whether it's a British flag that would be absurd to fly or the way that the, you know, the swastika, which has meant other things throughout history, but now just means the one clear thing. We don't have any tolerance for this discussion around that. There's no one arguing seriously that we should be having, that anyone in the world should be having a swastika on their letterhead or as a mascot on a sporting event where children are supposed to be learning something beyond violence. I, I think it's just been uh, a part of the deal with the devil, the, the sort of metaphorical devil of white pride and racism and, and what bargains had to be made for folks to stay in office or to get in office in the first place that we have said, oh, yeah, it's like you're a good old boy like me. We This flag, you know, it's, it's a little symbol of our, our club. And in the face of such flagrant violence in 2015, which it didn't really matter as much to people in 1965, but we've grown some as a people, mm-hmm. just take that stuff down. After a mass racist murder, it's the only flag that persists on state grounds at its full height mm-hmm. is this one that was brought out from the dustbins of a failed history to try to scare and terrorize people into submission. When I went back to... to talk to kids at my school for my book, 
the Confederate flag was already gone, but I gave a survey to like, you know, a few hundred kids. And I asked them, what does the Confederate flag mean to you? Literally, I kid you not, 77, 78% said that the Confederate flag stands for school spirit. And they mean it. They're 17-year-olds. That's what they know. But what happens then is this revisionist history has been taught that it's about heritage. It's about the Southern genteel way of life and, and all this other things. And people have actually bought it hook, line, and sinker. And what's happening now in these Facebook discussions at my high school, all of these people who are genuinely good and decent people have invested this symbol of hate with goodness. And they, they're putting up pictures of, well, this was our homecoming. This was when we won the state championship. Look at all these kids in their rebel mascots going down and doing Habitat for Humanity. That's the rebel spirit. We're helping people. And so they, it's the equivalent of you've taken like a group of people and hermetically sealed them in this you know, isolated culture, and you've given them the Nazi, Nazi swastika, and you've told them that it only means love of kittens and puppies. And they've grown up their whole life thinking that they put you know, swastikas on their kittens and puppies, and it's wonderful, and it's great. And then they go out in the larger world, and you're like, no, no, that's genocide. And they're like, no, that's kittens and puppies. You can't take away my kittens and puppies. And so that's the argument you're having now. You're not arguing with racists who are secretly trying to get one over on you. You're arguing with people who have legitimately invested this symbol of hatred and white supremacy with positive values for themselves. They literally, sincerely don't know different. Well, then it's your job to go back and tell them. And I'm going to, and I'm going to write something along those lines for the, for the meeting next week. But here's part of the reason why... It's so difficult. One one woman in this Facebook group posted up, by the way, speaking of the Confederate flag, by the way, the flag they want to do away with was the original flag of the United States. If anybody took history at all and listened, you would know it. That was our flag for the first 13 colonies. Fly it proud. She actually believes that the Confederate flag was the flag of the original 13 colonies. And that's the weird thing that has happened in the South where all of this treasonous rebel iconography has come to mean patriotism. Everything you said is a great explanation for how we have far too long indulged we this have. nonsense. And perpetuated and, 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 and it's right. the, I, bullshit. I, mean, I, I remember you know, visiting Amsterdam um, a few years ago and, and I got off the plane through walking through the airport and I see these white dudes with like little drummer boy sets uh, dressed in kind of old school frilly costumery with blackface. Right, right. Yes. They're doing the, right. the Schwarze Pete yes. thing, who's like Santa's black little helper, and you know the people of Holland have had this argument and like, but our our kids love Black Pete. He's he's a friend yes. to all the children. It's, it's, it's yes. the same thing, yeah. I love my yes. black nanny. I you know it, it, the the word the N word is just it means love. Like so so just because people are massively ignorant and have been miseducated. Is not an excuse for inaction. No, it's yeah. not it is an excuse an, for inaction. It is an explanation it's not an, it's, for why, how hard right. it's going to be. Right. And I appreciate but the you know. new the facts that you're bringing to this. But I don't want our listeners to, to leave with any confusion. Like, if anything, more clarity. Uh, it's, you know, someone saying Sambo and Aunt Jemima, they mean syrup and happy happy people. You exactly. know, right. it's like happy servants and delicious pancakes. It's like, well, we don't do that anymore yeah i i think that we owe we've grown I, up yeah america grow up americans have a history of rising to the challenge and they can survive being re-educated the right way 
But uh, yeah, your re-education is the right word. Yes. To me, what I think, what I've witnessed watching this debate go on in, in my town so on for so long, is that I think when ignorance is that deep, it becomes a form of dementia. When they are so delusional that they are no longer living in reality, which is what these Confederate apologists are, when they're that far gone, when you just confront them head on and say, that's not reality, they will reject and dig in and fight you to the death. And so then the question becomes, so how do we take these people where they are and get them where they need to be? Start teaching American history in a more honest and balanced way. Now put it on a beer can. It'll be faster. Put it on a beer can. And eventually... (laughs) Put it on a beer can. I'm serious. Eventually, young people or the future generations will, you know, it'll, it'll become a different norm a different reality mm-hmm. if you if you teach the truth you have to do it at some point right i mean we've been duped for far too long and the crazy thing about what's happened in, in my high school about people associating this mascot and this flag with positive values is that black people are doing well academically and culturally and socially in this environment now and so they have come to associate the students the younger people not their parents because their parents know better but the, these young kids I've heard stories like when black kids, back when they still had the Confederate flag, black kids would score touchdowns in the football game and take up the Confederate flag and run the field with it. The last two years, they have a Confederate rebel man who dances on the sidelines of the mascot. The last two years, the guy inside the mascot costume, black dude. That's crazy. That's not right. It's not right, but <laughs> it, it's but it just shows you how deep the dementia goes and what is what's going to be required to turn that around. There are black people we, in the Facebook group defending the Confederate rebel. We got a multi-generational poison in our nation, and this is just one of the ways it shows up. Right? It shows up in policing. It shows up in healthcare outcomes. It shows up in black people not trusting doctors, and it shows up in twisted love of a symbol of racial intimidation and treason being embraced as if it means school friggin' spirit. Like we got to work that out. We yeah. got to massage that knot out. Um, and and I, so thank you, Tana, for highlighting how absolutely uh, perverse the reality on the ground is for, for many of us who don't live and have never lived in these communities. I think what you shared is a bit of new information and just adds a level of uh, respect for the size of the problem we are trying to solve. This is mm-hmm. a symbol that is so obviously wrong to so many of us. And there are people who should despise it, who love it. Because they have been miseducated, because their parents were miseducated, because their parents were miseducated. Right. Um, so let's get it on those beer cans. We want our listeners take on this. How should we think about resolving? How should we move forward on this flag issue? Uh, do we remove them without discussion, as Tanner's high school principal did? Just take them down. Do we put them in a museum, uh, as Raquel has offered, so we don't fully erase history, but there's some educational context? For which and and how do we break through to the people who have been badly programmed to uh, to learn the right way to do it? I doubt that uh, speeches by activists up north are going to have much of an impact on people who are actually living with this decision in their hands. Uh, show about race at gmail dot com. Send us your voice memos, your thoughts. Uh, Twitter and Facebook show about race is our handle on both of those platforms. The idea of teaching history differently uh, could help us recover from or even avoid this situation in the future. And there is some really, really painful history playing out right now on the island of Hispaniola. Uh, Raquel, our Dominion Yorkin, 
Uh, would you please uh, set the stage for us on this yeah. topic? Uh, speaking of a country full of dementia, um, let's talk about Dominican Republic and uh, Haiti. So in September 2013, there was a ruling denationalizing tens of thousands of Dominicans of Haitian descent retroactively to 1929. That's very symbolic which set the oars of what some folks are calling ethnic purging on cruise control. Yes, there has been deportations of Haitian Dominicans for many, many years, but this is the first time there's actually a law giving power to the Dominican oligarchy to actually go ahead and do this under the guise of law. Recently, the Dominican Republic was to uh, begin mass deportation of undocumented migrant workers, some 500,000 people or so and Dominicans of Haitian descent. And this is the most disturbing thing, people who, quote-unquote, look, appear to be phenotypically Haitian or have Haitian-sounding last names. Many have never been to Haiti, have no ties to Haiti, and this is just really, really, really crazy. It's a, it's a topic that I actually meditated this morning because I'm trying to present it dispassionately, but one that incenses and embarrasses and makes me just, it, it's reviling um, and revolting uh, for, for me and for many Dominicans and Dominican Americans in the diaspora over in the Dominican Republic and here. There have been protests in uh, New York City, in Boston, in Miami, where we have large enclaves of Dominican and Dominican Americans living. And here, Bill de Blasio recently had a press conference with uh, Dominican and Dominican American politicians and community activists and just regular plain old folk who don't think that this is cool. In Boston, the mayor had called for a boycott, a tourism boycott. And in uh, Miami, Haitians and Haitian Americans uh, also rallied and called for a boycott of Dominican-owned businesses in Miami. The Dominican Republic's oligarchy, their government, has basically responded the way you would expect somebody like Donald Trump to respond. So if you don't agree with them, they're just like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, you're, perso you're a persona non grata, you're a hypocrite. And they've been very, very defiant, despite an international call to stop this madness. Um, and it's really sick because of Dominican Republic's history and its place in the Americas of being a springboard to many things that have happened historically throughout the Americas. So obviously, you know, reading about the subject uh, over the past few days, the friction and the animosity between these two countries goes way back. It has deep historical roots. What was the spark that led to the 2013 law? Like, What is leading to this resurgence of of deportations? Is there like a new economic factor? There's official and unofficial, right? Mm -hmm. And some folks are saying that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's beef between uh, the president now, Danilo, with, the, with, the, with our former president, President uh, Lionel, a Harvard-educated Dominican-American dude. Um, his political mentor was Balaguer, and Balaguer, uh, who was basically like a dictator in our country, was, a, um, was part of the Trujillo regime. And that in itself is really, really loaded. Talk about self-hatred. Some people are saying that he kind of left it a mess to make Danilo look bad so that he can come back into power. Some other people are saying that it's just, you know, the Dominican oligarchy wanting to kind of stamp out and sandblast blackness from the two-thirds of the island that make up the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. But I find that to be really interesting and really kind of sick and twisted 
because not to go through the entire history of the Dominican Republic, but just some beats. Right. When Columbus was first discovered on the Haitian side in the West by a group of indigenous people who had been there for thousands of years, they saved his life. He noticed that they were wearing gold, went back to the monarchs, went back to Spain and got some money to bankroll basically what would be the blueprint for capitalism and slavery in the Americas. So, you know, so he comes back and he basically enslaves the indigenous people. He makes them mine for gold. And out of this oppression, you have the first maroon societies in the Americas. You have indigenous Americans going off to the mountains because they know the terrain better and freeing themselves. So what happens is the first boatload of African slaves comes to the, uh, to the Dominican Republic. They're Ladino slaves who are a Hispanicized slaves that come from, from Castile by way of West Africa. So they come in and they're like, yo, we're not going to take this either. We're going to set ourselves free. And they basically rose up and set their own free communities, Copalenques. Fast forward to the 1800s, the Haitian Revolution. In 1801, we became, because of Haiti, because of Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Revolution, we became the first, the Dominican Republic and Haiti, today's Dominican Republic and Haiti, the first free state in the, in, in the Americas. So what happens there is that Toussaint and the people who come after him want to be recognized as an independent state. America doesn't recognize them. They don't want for slaves here, West African slaves, to rebel. Now, some people ask themselves, how did Dominicans who are very close to Haitians in complexion start seeing themselves as whites of the island? Mm -hmm. And when I was doing research for my book, um, Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina, I came across these uh, travel narratives and books written by, you know, and and texts written by Sylvia torres Sayant, um, uh, intellectual and um, professor, and Janetta Candelario from Smith College, who wrote a book called Black Behind the Ears. That is, you have to read this book. It's pretty amazing of how America and American imperialism was basically the seed that was planted in the Dominican Republic to try to start making the oligarchs who wanted nothing to do with Haiti because they were they were resentful for being occupied um, think that they were relatively white. Mm-hmm. So you see how we see race here. If you're like a drop black, you're black. Americans were like, no, 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 you're kind of the whites of the island because they wanted to basically have a base. They wanted to annex the Dominican Republic to America. You had uh, our 10th president, John Tyler, had a secretary of state named, was, who was another John, John Calhoun, who was a rabid racist and a slave owner who had an emissary named John Hogan, who was sent to count how many blacks, how many whites, in quotes, and how many mixed race people were there as, you know, in comparison to, to Haiti. And he came back saying, well, in my words, there's some blacks, but there's mostly mixed people and Spanish people. And the blacks that are there are only there because of Haiti's rapacity, because of sexual violence. And today you fast forward and that shit is still being like sold, is being doled out like colonial flavor aid to the masses. Right. And while I'm not saying that every, because it's, you know what, there are a lot of movements over there that are very pro they're proud of being African, of their African lineage. They're proud of mm-hmm. being indigenous. They're proud of being mixed. They're proud of being part European. They're proud of their total selves. They are not anti-Haitian, but there are groups right. that are being duped into believing that Haitians going to come in. They're the boogeyman. They're going to just completely rape your children and do whatever, you know, what Donald Trump says Mexicans do here. Right. So then you have that video that I, that I will post 
onto our show notes that has these, you know, examples of of, of Dominicans who look like the Haitians that they're oppressing mm-hmm. doing that. Right. Damn, Raquel. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who are not uh, holding microphones and are part of our live discussion right now, you just got served a healthy dose of history. And I think this, this makes me think of a couple things. One, it, it may be like our second sound uh, Nazi reference of the show, which is like what can happen when you vilify people and sort of pin the problems of your society on one ethnic or racialized group uh, and stir up all these fears with government sanction, which allows good people to silently do nothing, which allows the crazies to, to pursue their own you know, evil ends unchecked and which forces people to flee you know, on their own, even if the deportations don't happen. The I, the fear that it stokes up in those who maybe have some Haitian blood or don't have the papers to prove that they got this Dominican connection, they may just roll out. And then the future connection is like, let this be such a warning to our own discussion in the United States, uh, same right. same hemisphere about uh, immigrant you know fear mongering and about racialized othering and about the sort of scapegoating of an entire group of people. Uh, you know what? You know these deportation centers that they're setting up uh, in the Dominican Republic sound a lot like these ICE facilities that are set up here in the U.S. on the border, operated by private companies to right. to get people to. I mean, Mitt Romney wanted Lat- Latinos to self-deport, and Donald Trump. You don't have to be as crazy as Donald Trump to see the slippery slope here. Bobby Jindal, his four-point plan for America starts with secure yes. the borders. Uh, like we have a problem with our borders. Like the problem is in the United States is not. The border is what's been going on inside the United States since its inception. I, so, well, but I the problem also is what's I'm going parallels. on outside the United States. If you, you know, I watched this great documentary about uh, immigration from Mexico. Mexicans don't want to leave. It's just that all the money yeah. has been sucked up yeah. here, and this is where the jobs are. If there were more opportunity, if U.S. corporations hadn't gone into Central and South America and extracted so much money and, and brought it back up here, People would be happy to stay in their own countries. What strikes me as fascinating about what's going on in Dominican Republic now, it's like a combination of of the worst kind of virulent racism mixed with like a 10-year trip to the DMV, which is this bureaucratic nightmare. It's not like they're just rounding people up with death squads and shipping them out like in the middle of the night. What's going on right now is these people are being trapped in this bureaucratic maze that's taking them years. They spend years like in limbo of not knowing where they are, where they're going to be, and what their papers are and where they can be. It's Kafkaesque. It really is. And then, you know, I, I was hearing from some of my friends in the Dominican Republic that, you know, you can imagine the melee, right, of people standing online and waiting and trying to get through to get these extension papers. Mm-hmm. People that were not Haitian, ostensibly so, because there are Haitians that are very, very, very light-skinned as well. I don't know what, I don't know what Dominicans mean when they say that look Haitian. They were able to get in right away and get their papers. Mm-hmm. The sad thing is, the last time I was there was in May of 2013, a few months before this ruling passed, and I kind of saw some of the hints. I took a group of uh, girls, some who have never been on a plane, some who have never left the Bronx, to the Dominican Republic to learn about the history of the Americas and what it means to be American in a more holistic sense. And when we got to the hotel, there was a wall that was like a museum for Trujillo, who was the dictator, who was like our version, you could say, of Hitler. Mm-hmm who used to wear baby powder, like powder on his face, to appear to be lighter skinned. 
I, I still can't wrap my head around it. And he was basically put into power by America because he was a snitch. He was a rat for America. So I remember when we got picked up from the airport, I remember um, the guy who took the mic to welcome us to the Dominican Republic. I mean, I used to live there. I grew up there for part of my life, uh, telling us how great Trujillo was. And I snatched the mic from him. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? I'm like, do you understand? You're a black man. He would have not liked you. He would have, or, you know, you would have been in a bad place. Well, he did a lot of good things for us, too. So I kind of started seeing. We these... should get that guy a rebel mascot costume. Yes, I can see them adopting. So, I mean, they should. Ad- I mean, that's basically the kind of ideals that they're holding up. I was not able to give you the entire history of the Dominican Republic, so I left a lot of things out, and I'm going to post a lot of stuff on our show notes that will fill in the blanks, and we'll talk about it more on the B-side, I hope. But in the meantime, what I want to think about and what I want to post to you guys is what do we do now, right? Some people are calling for boycotts. Um, Ezrich Dandicat was on Democracy Now! And she talked about, you know, the sugar industry and how we get most of our sugar from the Dominican Republic and maybe, you know, economic pressure. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, the boycotts are always controversy, controversial, right? Because, you know, who are you really hurting when you do it? And I don't know enough about the Dominican Republic to say, but I think, you know, the parallels to what's going on here in America and the economics of immigration and, you know, you have these big companies and, and that want the labor. They want the cheap labor and they want everyone over here. Because what, what happened in Alabama, they passed similar to what Haiti did. They, they passed all these draconian self-deportation laws just to make life so unbearable for Hispanic people that they would leave. And so Hispanic people just left. They went to work in Georgia and Florida and, and elsewhere. And just fruit and vegetables were just rotting in the fields. And all the economic interests were like, wait a minute, you know, this is bad. We can't. You can't do this. In fact, they brought unemployed Americans out to the fields to do the work because there were no Hispanics, and Americans were like, "We don't want to do this. Screw this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're not doing this." <laughs> so you know, at at some point, uh, economic interests have to step in and you know restore some kind of sanity. Because it seems from what you're saying is that there are these latent hatreds and fears that are there to be tapped, and you have sort of a top-level political power play that's going on that's tapping into these fears for political advantage, but it's not actually to anyone's economic advantage on the yeah, ground. and they're manipulating the masses by miseducating them. Well, let's um, let's leave it at that for now, y'all. Raquel, a special thank you for providing so much context. This is a different flavor of a segment, but I think you have such a personal uh, connection and knowledge of what's going on that I was honestly just happy to listen uh, for the listeners out there, uh, why don't you pick up the ball where we have placed it gently on the court and tell us what you think about the idea of boycotting uh, the Dominican Republic, of some kind of sanctions, of an economic blockade. Uh, I am reminded of South Africa and its racialized formal politics and what it has taken uh, internally and externally to shift that nation's perspective, Germany, Russia, uh, our own United States are, are all examples from the past, present, and future along the spectrum. So so if you have a direct connection to Española, love to hear from you especially. But even if you don't, love to understand how you're receiving this uh, as a, a resident of the U.S., which most of our listeners are. Uh, showaboutrace at gmail.com. Showaboutrace on Facebook and Twitter. You know the deal. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, finally today, yo, check this out. Our recommendation pile of media links, books, concerts, plane tickets you got to buy to check out a food truck in your city that we think you should know about. Uh, what is on the list of things to recommend coming from you, Tanner? 
Well, one thing I picked up, it's been on my bookshelf for a long time, that one of those books you buy and keep meaning to get to and keep meaning to get to, Eric Foner's Reconstruction, which is one of the seminal texts about the Reconstruction era. And to understand a lot of what people misunderstand or don't know behind the post-Confederacy, what America turned into after the Civil War, I think when we talk about educating people out of this delusion, uh, that's a great book to start with. So that's what I picked up. I tackled this subject from very much the uh, civil rights integration era, and 90% of what I read is is from there, and my knowledge of the way back is actually more limited. So I'm doing that. That's my project for the summer. Great. Uh, Raquel, what you got? I have a few things. It's required reading. It's called The Dominican Republic, A National History by Frank Moya Pons, who's our foremost historian about Dominican and Caribbean history, and also... Um, a very, very, even though it's like academic, a very accessible, engaging uh, book by the name of Black Behind the Ears, Dominican Racial Identity from Museums to Beauty Shops by Janetta Candelario, which is basically an historical and ethnographic examination of Dominican identity formation in the Dominican Republic and in the United States. And then one other thing I want to just drop in there is a documentary that Cody put me on to called... Um, Real Injun, R-E-E-L-I-N-J-U-N, about Native American First Peoples depictions in Hollywood. And it's free. It's available on Netflix. You can watch it there. Hell yeah. And I started this uh, show with a check this out that I just want to repeat. I love my sister. Her name is Belinda Thurston. And you (laughs) should check her out. She is Just Be Yoga. J-U-S-T, letter B, the word yoga. That's her on Twitter. That's the dot com. Uh, we've talked about a lot on this episode of, of things that are very painful and there is something to the healing process required to get through that pain, historical, genetic, current, uh, and the, I'm inspired by the work she's doing in that area. So I recommend it. I also want to double down on a more, uh, cursory recommendation from earlier in the show. And that is listen in full to the president of the United States, talk to a comedian in a garage. Uh, that comedian's name is Mark Marin. That president is Barack Obama. And we have a custom short URL to make it easy for you to find. It is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Obama on W-T-F. That is all lowercase, no spaces of special characters, Obama on W-T-F. You can also Google those things if you can't remember the same things I asked you to Google. Uh, you will get a side uh, of a president that I think has addressed so much more than what we talked about in this. Uh, in just about the same amount of time, which to me says maybe he should host this show uh, in part when he moves on from his current job. Our producer today is AC Valdez, our research assistant and tech maven, without whom none of this is very possible, Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply got links to everything we've talked about on our website showaboutrace.com and you can join a more public conversation on facebook or twitter using the handle show about race we especially love email because it means you're only talking to us it's more intimate we feel special and we love the sound of your voice so attach a voice memo to that email and we'll do our best to work it into the b-side as always we can never cover the whole conversation but we expand our table to create a seat for you That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Raquel Cepeda and Tanner Colby, I'm Baratunde Thurston, and we won't stop until racism is over.